Isaiah chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 today. Let's hear the word of our Lord, Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins." The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray now for God to bless his word. Our Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold and sweeter than honey. By your words, we are warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would show us the meaning and the truth of these words, especially as we look at Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that you would reveal to to us more of him and who he is and reveal to us how we might keep your word. Help us to know the great reward that comes from spending this time in your word. We ask for your help by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Maybe many of you have been to the 9-11 memorial in New York City in Ground Zero. And if you go there, you will find a tree. It's called the Survivor Tree. It's called the Survivor Tree because when the Twin Towers fell, a bunch of rubble covered this one tree. A pear tree that at that time was eight feet tall and Because of the towers falling, its branches were broken, Uh, the stump of the tree was charred, and many of the roots were snapped. But when the workers discovered this tree under the rubble, they decided to try to save it. And the parks department took it and rehabilitated it. So that now it stands there at the memorial and it's 30 feet high. It is bearing seeds. And it's now used so that they take seedlings from that tree and they send them out to other places that have experienced tragedy. So some of these places that have experienced school shootings, they they will send seedlings from that tree and then plant those trees in those places. So a blackened and charred and broken tree is recovered to life and is now a symbol It sits there at the memorial to represent the resilience of those who survived and provides hope as people look at that 
tree. And that's a bit of a picture of what Isaiah has been giving us in these last few chapters. The kingdom of Judah is chopped down by Assyria. We saw that in chapter 10, that God used Assyria as the axe that would chop down the kingdoms. But God said that because of his sovereignty, he was able to protect the remnant. And he wouldn't allow the king who had it in his heart to destroy and and bring complete annihilation. God would not allow that to happen, but he would protect a remnant that would remain in Zion. And so, out of that remnant, Isaiah now tells us that a branch is going to grow. That there will be that remnant like a stump. A stump that is almost dead, that seems destroyed. And you might remember in chapter 6 of Isaiah, when God told him to go and preach, he said that he was going to preach to people whose hearts were hardened, they wouldn't listen, and they would be judged by God. And God said that the people of Israel would be like an oak tree that was felled, and only a tenth would remain. Only a remnant of 10% would be left And God says, the holy seed is its stump. And so Isaiah has already given us this image of a stump of a tree to be like the remnant. But chapter 10 ended with destruction of another forest. Assyria would chop down Judah, but not all the way. A stump of a remnant would remain. But at the end of chapter 10, we see that Assyria is going to be chopped down. The axe becomes the forest. And God is going to use another axe called Babylon to cut down Assyria. So by the end of chapter 10, we have a picture of a pretty sad situation. Pretty desperate circumstances. We have a picture of Assyria completely desolate and Judah and Israel mostly desolate. But there's a stump that remains. Funny that the great mighty empire of Assyria comes to nothing. And that tiny nation that seems so insignificant has a little bit remaining. Because God is with them. Emmanuel. God protects them. And so as Isaiah goes into chapter 11, he's now telling us what will come of that stump. That a shoot, a branch will come forth and a new kingdom is going to be built with a new king. This is what we want to see Isaiah tell us about this new kingdom. We see three main parts about this. First, he tells us that it's going to be a Davidic kingdom. It's going to be also a spiritual kingdom. And third, we see it's a peaceful kingdom. So let's begin looking into this chapter 11 and see more about what this kingdom will be like. First, verse 1 again says that this is going to be a Davidic kingdom. Or maybe we should say it's a Jessianic kingdom. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Verse 1, mentioning Jesse, is clearly a reference to the kingdom of David and God's covenant that he made with King David that he would have a king on the throne who would reign forever and ever. David would never lack a man on the throne. That's the covenant that God made with David. But that brings up the question. Verse 1 doesn't say that the branch will come from the stump of David. It says from the stump of Jesse. Why does he mention Jesse? Hardly ever in the Old Testament does the Old Testament talk about a king coming from Jesse. It's always from 
David. So it's pretty unique that Isaiah would do this. So what does he mean here? Well, maybe one reason is to emphasize the fact that this coming king, the Messiah, is going to be like a new David. You could think of Hezekiah or Ahaz or Solomon. They were all sons of David. They were all descendants of David. But only David himself was the only king who was directly the son of Jesse. And so maybe Isaiah is emphasizing for us that not just that this king will come from the line of David and eventually come from the the family of David, but that this Messiah will be like a, a new David himself. Maybe he's also telling us and trying to focus on the fact of how bad things are at this time. When David became king, the the first King David, he was a shepherd, part of the family of Jesse. And Samuel went over to him and, and God pointed him out as the one who was going to be king. But there wasn't anything special about the family of Jesse at that time. It was just a common family. And out of that common family, God chooses the king. And so it could be also that Isaiah is trying to get us to think about the fact that when this king comes, he's not going to come as born to a monarch. As we kind of saw in in chapter 9, when we thought about the monarchy and, and how, you know, when Prince William has a son, all, all the newspapers make this great announcement about this king, this king or prince has his own son and this is what it's going to be like. Well, well that's not what it's going to be like. When this king comes along, it's going to be as if he comes from a common family, the way that David did. And so the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he is from the line of David and he is from the line of Jesse. But he wasn't born to a king. He was born to a carpenter. Part of a carpenter's family. As Joseph was betrothed to the Virgin Mary. He wasn't born to Queen Mary. But just a typical young lady. Who finds herself having a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. Christ comes from a common family. Christ comes when the monarchy of David has been reduced to nothing. There's no, there's no king of David on the throne. There's no king of Judah when Jesus comes along. There is no kingdom at all. They're under the Roman Empire. It's as if the forest is just chopped down to a stump. And there's this stump of Jesse from which Jesus comes. From that stump, verse 1 goes on to say, a branch grows. A branch comes out of that root, that stump. Maybe you remember from chapter 4 that Isaiah prophesied about this branch also when he said, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And it could be that in chapter 4 when he calls him a branch of the Lord, it's a reference to his divinity, that he's God because he comes from the Lord. He's a branch of the Lord, and now here he's a branch from Jesse. And so maybe we have a a little bit of hints that this branch is both divine and human. This branch of the Lord will bear fruit. The tree is going to grow up, and it will bring more trees. It will bring more fruit. It's not going to die and it's not going to stay small, but it's going to grow. And so this kingdom that is being promised and prophesied about here is the kingdom that is going to grow and it's going to overtake the world. And this is what Jesus teaches about in in Mark 4, about the kingdom of God, that it's like the, the mustard seed that is planted, but that seed is planted and it becomes one of the largest trees of the garden. And all the birds of the air make their nests in its shade. 
This kingdom that comes from such small things, that looks so small, that, that doesn't even look like a kingdom, is going to be the kingdom that rules the world. So we know that the Messiah is Jesus Christ, and Jesus tells us that he has come to bring the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 1, when he comes along and he begins to preach, he says, the time is fulfilled. The time that Isaiah had prophesied is fulfilled. This is the time now for the king to come. And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. God is building his kingdom ever since Genesis 1 and then Genesis 3 when he makes the promise that the king is coming and he's building his kingdom across the Old Testament. And then finally, when Jesus begins his ministry, he says, the kingdom is at hand. The king is coming now to establish his kingdom. And so what does Jesus say? He says, repent and believe the gospel. That's how you enter into the kingdom, is by repenting and believing the good news of how this king is coming to do all these things that we're going to read about in the next verses. The king is coming to make an eternal kingdom of peace and life. And you can have life if you repent and believe the good news of Jesus as king. And so verse 1 reminds us That our hope is only in one person. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. The nation looks like a mess. The nation looks like rubble. Perhaps you feel that your life is a big mess. Your life is crumbling. Full of a bunch of rubble. Full of a bunch of forest that is just cut down to nothing and it seems as if there's nothing left well the only hope for you in your own life the only hope for anything or anybody is only in this one person Jesus Christ he's the king he's the one who's come to bring his kingdom you are called to repent and believe the gospel to confess your sins To know Jesus Christ as your only Savior, as the one who has died on the cross as a substitute and risen from the dead and now sits as king at the Father's right hand. That's the only hope for your life to be put back together, for you to have eternal life and eternal peace is in this one king and no one else. So first, we see that this kingdom is a Davidic kingdom. Second, we see that it's a spiritual kingdom. We see that in verses 2 to 5. Now in verse 2, we see what kind of spirit this Messiah is going to have. And then in verse 3 to 5, we see what he is going to do. So first, let's see what kind of spirit is upon this Messiah. Let's read verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This king, this Messiah, he's going to have the spirit of the Lord, of Yahweh, resting upon him. Now, Jesus Christ is fully God. And as God, he is one with the Holy Spirit. And nothing changes when the Son of God takes on flesh. Okay, so when he takes on flesh and becomes a man, he does not stop being one with the Spirit of God as the Son of God in his divine nature. But we can also say That as a true man, Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit upon him in his humanity. And as a man, everything that he does, he is doing it being dependent on and led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We see this from the very beginning in 
the conception of the human nature, the body and soul of Jesus, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. And, and even that is a, is a picture of how the Holy Spirit is upon Jesus, even as he is in the womb of Mary in his human nature. And then when Jesus grows up and we see at his baptism that the Spirit appears to be descending like a dove upon Jesus. When the Spirit appears as if coming on Jesus at his baptism, it's not to say that that's when Jesus gets the Holy Spirit. But it's like his coronation or his anointing. This is the way the Bible talks about it. When Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, he says, uh, talking about the baptism, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. The baptism is his anointing with the Holy Spirit. And maybe an analogy of the coronation might help you to think about this or understand it. Or you might remember when Queen Elizabeth II died. King Charles became king right after, a second later, after Queen Elizabeth dies. That's why they say the phrase, the queen or the king is dead, long live the king. The king is dead, long live the king. What does that mean? Well, it means the old king is dead, long live the new king. That's what that phrase means. Because right away, as when the other king is dead, this other king is alive. So King Charles becomes king right when Queen Elizabeth dies. I think it took, though, four months for the coronation to happen. And when King Charles was coronated, they even anointed him. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury poured oil on his head. And that's because they follow the Old Testament symbolism. So King Charles was king, but he was anointed as king four months later as a recognition, as a demonstration that he already is king. And that's what it is for the baptism of Jesus. When the Spirit descends upon him, it's to demonstrate to everyone around this is my beloved son. This is the one who has always had the Holy Spirit resting upon him. And that's why you need to listen to him. Well, then when Jesus is tempted right after this, it says the spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted. And then Luke tells us that he returns from the wilderness in the Holy Spirit. Jesus says he casts out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. So everything Jesus is doing is guided by the Spirit. So the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him, Jesus. But what does Isaiah focus on? How does the Spirit enable and empower Jesus? We know that he does great miracles and he casts out demons, but what does Isaiah say? The Spirit gives him wisdom and understanding, counsel, and might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. You know, people today, they like to use this phrase about being led by the Spirit. God telling them to do, do some, something. Uh, I've heard of some guys who will walk up to a girl and they say, well, the Holy Spirit has told me that, that we're going to get married. Uh, don't do that. That's, that's weird. That's not the Holy Spirit leading you there. But that's people's idea of the Spirit. The Spirit just gives me these sensations or nudges to go and do these odd things. But if I just say God's telling me to do it, then that justifies anything. That's not what Isaiah says. Spirit doesn't lead you to do strange things, awkward things. The Spirit doesn't lead you to do crazy things, do these wild signs or miracles. Now, if you're a person led by the Spirit, 
You're going to be wise. You're going to fear the Lord. These words, a lot of them in verse 2, are right out of the book of Proverbs. They are even there in chapter 1 of Proverbs. To know wisdom and understanding, knowledge, fear of the Lord. That's what wisdom is, Proverbs says. Proverbs is a king telling the future king how to be a good king, his son. Here's how to live a wise life, he says. Uh, Verse 2 is about a king. How do you live as a good king? You need to be wise and fear the Lord. In the middle of verse 2, counsel and might, you probably recognize those words. They're from chapter 9. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. And so Isaiah is connecting us that this person is the same person as chapter 9. He's the mighty God. He's the wonderful counselor. He's going to be the the great king. Now the spirit of the Lord rests upon him. You know, the, the Bible also tells us that this same spirit is given to those who are in Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you receive the same Holy Spirit of Christ. Jesus breathed upon his disciples in John 20 and told them to receive the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 7 that we receive gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ has the Spirit. He then gives the same Spirit. So for you, these truths of verse 2 are the same for you. Do you want to be led by the Spirit? Be wise. Seek understanding. Seek knowledge and fear of the Lord. That's what it means for you to walk in the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walking in the Spirit is not doing wild and crazy things or strange things. But it's to grow in being a wise person. So this is the Spirit given to Christ that is then given to us. Now then, what does the Messiah do in verses 3 through 5? Let's read it. It says, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What has he come to do? Well, we can summarize it by saying he's come to rescue his people. He's come to help the needy. He's come to rescue the meek who are being oppressed by a wicked world and he's come to slay the wicked. And that's how he's going to save his own people. Verse 3 starts by saying his delight is in the fear of the Lord. You might read that as saying that he delights in his own fear of the Lord. So he delights to be a person himself who fears the Lord. But actually that's not what Isaiah means here. What Isaiah is saying is that he delights to find fear of the Lord in others. And he delights in those who fear the Lord. Now the word for delight here is actually literally the word for smell. Sounds strange, but it's actually how we often use the metaphor of smelling. You say, I smell a rat. You don't mean that literally most of the time, that you actually smell a rat. You mean you can perceive that someone is deceitful. You say, I'm going to sniff it out. You don't mean that literally. You mean you're going to look into something and dig deeper. When it says that the Messiah will delight or smell the fear of the Lord, it it means that he's like a hunting dog. The hunting dog who scent is trained to smell fear of God. And so he can tell 
if there's fear of the Lord in a person. Jesus knows. He knows you. He knows if there's grace in you. If you're one of his people or not. He knows if there's any fear of the Lord in you. And even if there's a little bit of fear of God in you. He can sniff that out, so to speak. That's what he delights in. He delights to see grace in his people. And you can see how that connects with verses 3 to 5. Some people might appear to fear the Lord. Some people... To, to each other, we might say, well, that person doesn't really fear the Lord. I, I don't see much of that in them. But Jesus can perceive and sniff out what is really in a man. John 2, Jesus knows what is in man. So, some people might appear outwardly. But Jesus has no delight in them. Other people might not appear so much outwardly. But Jesus does delight in them. And so he's going to judge and rescue those who fear the Lord. Well, then the rest of verses 3 to 5 are, are mostly talking about how Jesus will behave as a wise judge. He's not going to judge just by what his eyes see or what his ears hear, but he'll do what is right. Uh, in our world today, any judge and every jury is limited by the evidence, testimonies that may be available or not available, or evidence that they can see or not see. And that's why sometimes lawyers, one side will try to not allow this evidence in court, and the other side is going to try really hard that this piece of evidence be brought into court. We have a system of justice that says you're innocent until proven guilty. That's a good thing, I think. It's good that you're innocent until proven guilty, but that also means some people are guilty. They're guilty. They've actually done it, but they cannot be proven guilty in a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt, which is what's required. But the Lord Jesus, he doesn't have to make his decisions just upon what evidence is brought to court or what testimony is made in court, but he can go beyond what his eyes see, what his ears hear. Verse 4, he can go beyond a celebrity's last name or net worth. Lawyers, uh, rich people can, can hire lawyers that can get them off free, even if they're guilty. We know that sometimes juries are biased. They tend to be biased towards those who are more well-known or have more money. It's the poor who, who often are punished, looked down on, even if they, they might not have done it, because they're just not the same standard. It's supposed to be, but in real life, that's not how it always works. But not so with Jesus. He doesn't give bias and preference to the rich, but he's willing to defend the poor. He's not going to let a rich man off because a rich man can bribe him or influence the system. And so what these verses remind us as Christians of is that our king is a judge who sets everything right. He does what is righteous. He brings justice. One day, the Lord Jesus will set everything right. In this life, you can't always make sure that, that everything gets settled. Well, you said this, and you said that, and here's what you did to me, and, and you need to make it right. Well, it's not always going to happen. But the Lord Jesus knows how to judge the poor, defend the meek, the meek who might not receive justice on this earth. And we need to remember to look forward to that day when Christ sets everything right for his people. 
The last thing about this spiritual kingdom is in the second part of verse 4. That this spiritual kingdom is by the word of Christ. So it's a spiritual kingdom because it's guided by the spirit. But also because the king doesn't use weapons that a normal king would use. He doesn't strike with swords, but with his mouth. He doesn't use the rod of the king. Remember how the king of Assyria is God's rod of anger. But the king of Judah will use the rod of his mouth, not a physical rod. With the breath of his lips, he kills the wicked. Psalm 2 verse 9 tells us about the Messiah that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He'll break them like they're just a piece of pottery. Well, Isaiah tells us that's not a physical rod of iron, but it's the rod of his mouth. It's the words of Christ. Paul quotes this verse when he's talking about the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. He says that Christ will return and he will kill the man of lawlessness with the breath of of his mouth. Luther said, one little word shall fell him. Satan is a murderer from the beginning, but one little word shall fell Satan. All Jesus has to do is come back and speak the word and his enemies are defeated. Jesus Christ in his ministry on earth, he used his words to preach the gospel. He cast out demons by speaking words. The Holy Spirit uses the word of Christ to slay the wicked, to defeat the demons, to establish the kingdom of Christ. Of course, this is why people didn't understand that Jesus was actually the king. Because he didn't come with weapons of war. He came with words. Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom by his word. And so we remember that Christ is using us. Christ can use you as you go and you preach the gospel. As you speak about Christ in the world, Christ puts to death the forces of evil and wickedness and he's building his kingdom through the spirit using the word of Christ. Well then, The last part of this passage is we see that this is going to be a peaceful kingdom. Let's read verses 6 to 9 again. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As we look at those first few verses just want to point out a little a little point it's not really that important but people often talk about the lion and the lamb lying down together and songs are written about this and even bible scholars and commentaries they say the lion and the lamb will dwell together well it doesn't say that the lion dwells with the lamb it says the wolf and the lamb the leopard and the goat the calf and the lion the cow and the bear. So just try not to say lion and the lamb. Say wolf and the lamb. That's, that's what Isaiah actually says. But I think you get the point of the passage that Isaiah is showing how those who naturally are enemies are going to be reconciled. This is going to be a peaceful kingdom. The wolf will nap with the lamb rather than try to hunt it. The leopard will relax by the goat. The calf and the lion, the lion will look at that fattened calf and instead of licking his chops and wanting to eat it, 
he will just sit there with that fattened calf. There's peace between the animals. There's also peace between the animals and human beings. We see the child there. A little child shall lead them. One commentary said that these verses represent a parent's worst nightmare. Uh, A parent would have nightmares about this scenario if this were happening on this earth rather than the new earth. Imagine your little child walking with a wolf. Imagine your little child walking up to the lion and, and, you know, you take your kids to the zoo, you say, pet the sheep, don't pet the lion. Imagine that the the child reaches out his hand to the lion and your parents, oh, what's going to happen? And then you look over and you see your little toddler playing over the hole of the cobra. And you know how kids like to stick their hands in things like aquariums and they like to try to play with the fish. Imagine they're doing that with the cobra. And the, the cobra strikes his, his uh, head, his, his fangs, and, and the child just laughs. It's a game. It's a game. Can I get the cobra to strike at me? And he has no fear because the cobra isn't going to hurt him. So we have a picture of peace with the animals and the people. We have a picture basically of what the Garden of Eden would have been like if there had been no sin that came into the world. If Adam and Eve had had children in the Garden of Eden, they would have uh, walked the wolves and played with the snakes. That's not the way it is because of the curse of sin. Notice also it's, it's no coincidence that in verse 8, it's the snake that the child is playing with. Remember God's curse. Because of sin, there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And here we have a symbol of how that enmity is done away with. The seed of the woman, the the child, is not at enmity with the snake. And the snake is not trying to attack the child, but they're playing together because that enmity has been done away with through this Messiah, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the effects of sin here are done away with because sin itself has been done away with by the time we get to this kingdom. Some of you might be wondering how literally we should take uh, these verses, especially 6 through 9. Should we think that there will be lions in the new earth? Will there be toddlers in the new earth? Or will will every saved person be an adult in the new earth? Here's my answer. I don't know. We don't really know. Isaiah is not really trying to make those points for us. He's trying to give us an image, a poetic way of expressing how the effects of sin and the curse are done away with. He's telling us that this peaceful kingdom will be not only between animals and people and animals and each other, but even between people and other people. Although he doesn't say that directly, it's, it's an argument from lesser to the greater. If, if, if even the animals won't hurt people, then surely People won't hurt people. If if the Messiah can do away with something so small as animals attacking people, then surely he can do away with people who attack people. So verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. You can say applies to everything. No hurt and no destruction in this new kingdom, the new earth. So we look at this passage, we see that when the Messiah comes and he finally establishes his kingdom, he will put away all sin and all effects of sin. He will do away with all war. We think about Christians and 
Myanmar and Ukraine and Israel and Palestine and how they can read verse 9 and find hope and encouragement that one day God will bring peace in this world. But it doesn't just apply to international wars. It applies to all ways that people hurt and destroy each other. Conflict doesn't just happen between nations, but between people. We even talk sometimes about conflicts as a war. People blow up at each other. People lock horns with each other the way that rams fight with each other. Well, if the rams won't fight with each other, then the people won't lock horns with each other. We face conflicts. We face times where people hurt us and we hurt them. Maybe you face conflict at your work. Face conflicts at home. We can say that homes sometimes fall apart and marriages are destroyed. But all of that pain will not be in the new earth. There will be no hurt or destruction. Maybe you feel pain from things like something that your father said to you 50 years ago. 50 years ago, he made you feel absolutely worthless. And that pain stays with you even to this day. That pain will not be around on God's holy mountain. It won't be there in the new earth. Think about this good news. No one will hurt you. Can you even imagine what that would be like? No one will hurt you and you will not hurt anyone else. We won't hurt each other. You think about your own sin. You say things that hurt people. You do things that hurt people. You do things that bring destruction, that cause fights and conflicts. You should grieve that you do these things. You should grieve how relationships can be destroyed and and close relationships and even families can tear apart because of things that you say and that you do. But all of that will be done away with. One day, you will not hurt. You will not destroy with what you say and what you do. How does this day come? It comes because the end of verse 9 says, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God will judge the wicked. Everyone there will be righteous. Everyone there will know the Lord. Only God's true people who are saved will be on this new earth and we will be glorified and so we'll be made perfect. We can see even from verse 9 how we can grow even while we wait. Peace comes because people know the Lord. The more we know the Lord, the more we fear the Lord, the less of ourselves there is in us, the more peace we will produce. We need to grow in dying to ourselves, grow in self-control, grow in reducing the harsh words that stir up strife and grow in giving soft words that turn away wrath. And we do this by knowing the Lord, by growing in fear of him and love for him. So the tree survives. The stump of Jesse remained and out of that stump came the Lord Jesus Christ who is the true king. And we might feel like even right now the the church is like a stump in the midst of a, a big forest and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of growth. The kingdom of God doesn't appear to be coming when there's so much wickedness in the world, and, and you might feel this even about yourself, that there's not a whole lot of the kingdom of God in, in you. 
You feel like you've just been cut down and there's maybe just a little bit of life left, a little bit of grace in you. We need to remember that out of this stump, the branch came and the branch will bear fruit, Isaiah says. And the branch is bearing fruit right now. The kingdom of God is growing because God has promised that it would grow. And even though it doesn't seem that the kingdom of God has a lot of influence in the world, remember Christ is building his kingdom. And Christ has given you his brother, and by faith in him, he's given you his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord that rested upon him also rests upon you so that you can grow in fear of the Lord and you yourself can bear much fruit. So as we look forward to the coming kingdom, we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Make all these things new. Bring this day when there will be no hurt or destruction in all of your holy mountain. We look forward and we wait. We press on. The promise that one day the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. God, we thank you that by your grace we live in the day where the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand through your Messiah, the anointed Lord Jesus, and that we ourselves can know him, be one with him, be united to him by faith. Help us to persevere in hope to not grow weary or lose heart as we look forward to the day when he returns, when this kingdom is established. We pray that you would encourage us that this spirit might be at work in us too, that there might be fruit in our lives that the Lord Jesus is, is bearing for his kingdom through us. We pray these things through Jesus Christ. Amen.